0: enough, and that video caused you to go back to Richard Simmons, that was the intent, okay? The older I get, the more I'm concerned about my health. When I was young, I used to be able to eat anything and everything I wanted, and I didn't think that it had any effect on me. And I got to tell you, I was reckless with my body. I was a daredevil, and because of it, I I broke multiple bones. I had numerous surgeries from my ankles to my head. But I knew that it was okay because I would bounce back. I knew that it wouldn't have any lasting effect on me personally, on me physically. Well, that was then. Today, I've realized that that's not the way it is. I realize that I can't eat anything and everything I want to without gaining weight. I went to the doctor, and the doctor told me I've got... Exercise-induced high blood pressure. Exercise-induced. I thought exercise is supposed to make your blood pressure go up. My cholesterol was raised. He said I was overweight. I mean, he offended me. And then I have all of these aches and pains all over my body from all of the abuse that my body has taken over the years. I've got five bulging discs in my back right now. I'm sitting back thinking that that I can do anything I want to do and and everything is going to be okay. But here at 60, everything isn't okay. So I've made a decision. Nope, I've made a commitment. I'm going to get healthy. But you know, it's a whole lot easier to make a commitment, isn't it? Than to keep a commitment. And, And I think a lot of people in America have come to realize that because America is at the same time the most health conscious and the most unhealthy nation in the world. I mean, we're health conscious, aren't we? I mean, there's as many gyms in each city as there are churches. And if you need to lose weight, man, there is a plan for you. All you have to do is go online and you can find a plan that is custom built just for you. But the problem is all of these gyms and all of these weight loss plans aren't working. We are still an unhealthy people. America is one of the most overweight nations in the world. We're a nation filled with people with high blood pressure and high cholesterol and all kinds of health problems. And it's not because we don't have the information. It's not because we don't know what to do. We're just not doing it. And the same thing that is true for us physically with our physical bodies, I believe is true for us spiritually with our spiritual bodies. You see, the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. And yet, I believe in America today, the church is more unhealthy than it has ever been before. And it's not because we don't have resources. It's not because we don't know what to do. We've got all the resources that we could ever possibly use at our disposal. And yet we are still an unhealthy people spiritually. Our churches are filled with unhealthy people. Our churches are unhealthy. So what is the solution? Well, that's what we're going to be focusing on for the next several weeks As we look at Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, and this series is based upon the very first verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I want to read it to you in my translation, my paraphrase. It says, I, Paul, who who is a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you, plead with you to walk in a way worthy of the calling you have received. And that word for walk is a word that means to keep on walking, to stop. Um, don't stop moving move forward in a direction that word is found four times in these two chapters chapter 4 and chapter 5 the translation that you're looking at may say to live a life or or something else like that but the word literally means to walk it means to move in a direction you and I are to be moving in a direction of Christ likeness and what Paul is saying here is this He's saying, I am a prisoner in Roman chains for one reason and one reason alone. I am a follower, a servant of Jesus Christ. And then he begs, he pleads with his brothers and sisters in Ephesus to live their lives in a way, to walk worthy of everything that Christ has done for them. And so I want us to read, What it says in verses 1 through 16. Listen to what it says. Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to Keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father who is over all and in all and living through all. However, he has given each one of you a special gift through the generosity of Christ. That is why the scriptures say, when he ascended to the heights... He led a crowd of captives and gave gifts to his people. Notice that it says he ascended. This clearly means that Christ also descended to our lowly world. And the same one who descended is the one who ascended higher than all the heavens. So that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church. And notice these are the gifts given to the church. Not to individual believers the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and to build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and Blown about by every wind and new teaching, we will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. And Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow, so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Now I believe that in these verses Paul gives us a description of what a healthy church looks like. And as he does, he gives us three characteristics that are found in any church that could consider itself healthy. Now the first thing Paul tells us is that a healthy church is characterized by unity. That's the focus Verses 2 through 6. Notice what Paul says in verse 3. He says, make every effort. In other words, do everything you can. Work hard to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. When the Spirit of God comes to live in our life, when we are born again, I believe we supernaturally are united with other believers. We begin to love them in a way that we have never loved them before. And we love his church like we have never loved his church before. But notice what Paul says, but then we must keep ourselves united. The Holy Spirit makes us united when he fills us, but then it's up to us to keep ourselves united. Why? Because our enemy knows a house divided against itself will not stand. And so our enemy, Satan, is going to do everything he can to divide us because if he can divide us, he will either defeat us or at the very least, he will make us ineffective. The truth is, I want you to write this down somewhere in your Bible, in your margins, on your forehead, on your wrist, wherever you want to write it. Write it down somewhere. The church will never be effective in the world if we are divided within our walls. Now let me say that again. The church will never be effective in the world if we are divided within our walls. The reason that the New Testament church made such an impact so quickly is because they were united. They were in one accord. There was no division. As a matter of fact, Every time we see division coming into the body of Christ, the gospel advancement ceased. They had to deal with the division, and once they dealt with the division, then they were be able to move on and, and, and share the gospel with the world. Now understand, unity does not mean uniformity. Uniformity is when we all look alike. Uniformity is when we all sound alike. Uniformity is when we all... Do the same things. But that's not unity. Unity is when we work together with common convictions and common commitments. And when we do that, the Bible says God is both honored and God is able to bless. I want you to listen to what David said in Psalm 133. He said how good and how pleasant, how pleasing it is when brothers live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down upon the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessings, even life forevermore. You see, the Bible says here that unity is not only good, unity is not only pleasing to God, it is in unity that God pours out his blessings upon his people, listen very carefully. We will never be a healthy church without being a united church. That's why the very first commitment that we ask any new member at Northside to make is this one. I will protect the unity of my church family. Now why is that the first commitment we ask you to make? Because if our unity is broken then we will be defeated or we will be ineffective. And so what that means is at all costs, we must protect the unity of our church family. That means when we have disagreements and we will. That means when we hurt one another's feelings and we will. We deal with it in a biblical way. We don't get upset. We don't take our ball and go home. We don't throw in the towel and move somewhere else. No. The Bible says that we go to the person that we have hurt or we go to the person that has hurt us. And we talk through it. We walk through it. We solve the problem. Why? Because we are one body. We're united together. Now, as you look through this passage, Paul tells us not only that we need unity, he tells us the qualities that we must have in our life if we're going to have unity. And the first quality he gives us is humility. I'm convinced that one of the main reasons that we don't have unity is because of pride. Our pride, our selfish pride, it's all about me and mine and what I want, what my desires are, what my wishes are, what what my feelings are. And, and we put ourselves before other people. Humility causes us to have that ability. to put other people before ourselves. That's what Jesus did, Paul says in Philippians 2. When he came down to earth, took on human flesh, took on the form of a man, he humbled himself, the Bible says, even to the point of being a servant, a slave. You see, if you and I want to have unity with other people, we have to come to that point where we put other people's needs before our needs, other people's wants, before our walls, humility. Then the next quality is gentleness. That word comes from a word that means power under control. It was was used to describe a a stallion, a horse that had been tamed and was now under the control of its master. The, The stallion hadn't lost its power. The stallion still had all of the power it had before, But that power was now under the control of someone else. That's what gentleness is. Gentleness is not our English definition of meekness, no. Gentleness is power that has been controlled. And you see, it's gentleness that allows us to submit to one another out of love for one another. Until we have this gentle spirit that the Bible talks about, a power that is under control, we'll never be able to submit to one another because we're going to always want to interject our thoughts, our feelings, our wishes, our desires. And then he uses the word patience. Patience that allows us to overlook one another's faults. And boy, we have a lot of faults, don't we? Do you have faults? If you've got faults, say, I've got faults. Say, the person next to me has faults. All God's children got faults, amen? Amen. We all got them. We all have faults. And it's patience that allows us to overlook one another's faults. Patience allows us to wait and trust rather than jumping in, taking over, or getting even. Patience allows us to recognize that we are all works in progress. None of us have arrived. None of us are there. No matter how long we've been in this journey, we're still a work in progress And so we have to be patient with one another. I have to be patient with my wife. I mean, she doesn't need much patience to live with me, but and you know that's a lie. I mean, we need patience. And then he says, and we need love. Love that binds us together in peace. And the word he uses for love here is the word agape. He could have used any of four different Greek words, but he uses the word agape, which is God love. It's a selfless love. It's a giving love the love that kind of tops everything off and says, it's not about me, it's about other people. And the Apostle Paul said, if you want to ever have unity, you've got to have these qualities in your life. And then he tells us what it is that unifies us in verses 4 through 6. In verses 4 through 6, he uses that word one seven different times. And what he is doing here is he's telling us the things that make us one, the things that unifies. You see, our unity is not a unity at all cost. There are things where we draw a line in the sand. There are things that we are willing to divide over, but those things, listen, are few and far between, and they are never the minor things that typically divide us. They are major things, doctrinal things, things that have to do it's with the clear word of God. And so listen to what Paul says here. He says, every believer is unified because we are part of one body. We're not divided by race. We're not divided by gender. We're not divided by social status or anything else that divides the people in the world. We are one body. And though there are many different, many different churches throughout the world, local church bodies, we are all part of one Body. Uh, that's why I can go to a church in, in in New York, or I can go to a church in Africa, or I can go to a church in Southeast Asia, and some of these people may be worshiping in a way that is totally different than the way I worship. They may be speaking a language that is totally different than the language I speak, but somehow, some way, when we get there and we're together and we're trying to worship our God. There's a unity present, even though we may not be able to communicate, even though we may not be able to understand what we're saying, there is a unity there, we're one body. And then he says there's one spirit, the same spirit that has filled me and empowered me has filled you and empowered you. You see, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is living in each and every one of us. And it is the Holy Spirit living in us that unites us and makes us one body. And then he says there's one hope. We're not living for today. We're not living for tomorrow. We're living for eternity. And it's our hope in the future that unites us. We're not building an earthly kingdom. That's why, listen to me. Listen to me. That's why I'm not concerned about November. Am I I going to take a stand on what I believe is going to happen or should happen in November? Yes, I'm going to take a stand. But I want you to know, whatever happens, I'm not worried. And the reason I'm not worried is because I'm not building a home here. I'm preparing for my home there. And I want to make sure everything I do is preparing myself for that home, for that future. And then he says there is one Lord, and that is the Lord we serve, and his name is Jesus. There is one that we bend our knee to. There is one that we bow our head to, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. There is one faith. There is one faith that saves. And and though each and every one of us come from different backgrounds, and though each and every one of us may have come to Christ through a different way, and, and our experiences may be different. Our faith was the same that saved us. No matter what you did before Jesus, you were saved by the same faith as the person who gave their life to Christ when they were seven, eight years old. It is the same faith. But this is not only talking about faith in a person, Jesus. This is talking about the faith in which we believe. The, the, the fundamentals, the, the principles, the that we build our life on. And that faith is the Bible, the Word of God. You see, it's the Word of God that ties our hearts together. The Word of God is our final source of authority. And so as we're walking through life, it's the Word that binds us together. And then he says there is one baptism that we partake in that identifies us as part of the body, the one body that we're a part of. Some say that this is a Holy Spirit baptism, but I don't believe there is any way that that you can interpret that this way. I believe that it's clear as you go through this progression that this is talking about water baptism. That water baptism that sets us apart and distinguishes us as a follower of Jesus. We are taking that step of obedience and identifying ourselves as a part of the body of Christ. And then he says there is one and only one God who is overall and living through each and every one of us. Those are the things that bind us, that unite us. You see, a healthy church is a united church. So you and I, as the body of Christ, have to make unity a priority in our life. Second thing he says is that a healthy church is characterized by diversity. Now the body of Christ is made up of diverse people. We have different looks, we speak different languages, we have different likes and dislikes, we are different. But here he's talking about our diversity of gifts. The Bible says that God gives each and every one of us different gifts. Notice what he said in verse 7. He, that is the Father, has given each one of us a special gift through the generosity of Christ. Every single Christian, hear me. Every single Christian has been given at least one spiritual gift. If you say, well, I don't have a spiritual gift, then understand this. If you don't have a spiritual gift, you're not saved. You may not have discovered your spiritual gift. Maybe you've never developed your spiritual gift. But if you're saved, you have a spiritual gift. Paul says this in Romans 12. He said, in his grace, God has given different gifts for doing certain things well. 1 Corinthians 12, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so that we can help each other. 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others faithfully administering God's grace in a variety of forms. I want you to think about your spiritual gift as your spiritual superpower. Your spiritual gift is different than your natural talents or abilities. Your talents and abilities were given to you at birth. You may have been given a talent for singing, playing an instrument. And I mean, from a very early age, you were able to do these things. You may were given a talent for athletics. I mean, you could just hit a golf ball or dribble a basketball or throw a football at a very early age without any effort whatsoever. Your your talent may be mathematics. You may be able to perform just mathematical equations that, that would boggle my mind. Our, our granddaughter, Aria, John and Christy's daughter, we discovered very early in her life, she just has this natural ability of fitting shapes together. I mean, as a, as a three-year-old, she could take a hundred-piece puzzle and put it together. I mean, she could put that puzzle together while I'm sitting there trying to get it out of the box. I mean, she's a, she's a, she was a preschooler. That's a natural talent. That's a natural ability. But a spiritual gift is a gift that is given to us at our spiritual birth. And God gives us that superpower so that he can super-strengthen us to make a difference in the world. Now, here's what I've discovered. Most of us aren't using our spiritual superpower. We're not. Some of us haven't discovered it, others of us haven't developed it, but most of us aren't using it. And by the way, listen, get this in your head, write it down, you're given a spiritual gift not for your good, you're given a spiritual gift for the good of the body. The spiritual gift isn't to make you feel good about yourself. Spiritual gift isn't so you can sit back and say, well, let me tell you what my gift is. I'm able to and we spout it off. No, if you're doing that, then you're filled with pride and you haven't even discovered what a spiritual gift is all about. Spiritual gifts are given so that the body can be complete. That's what he tells us as we go on here in verse 16. He says, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts grow. Did you get that? As I begin to use the spiritual gift that God has given me, it helps the rest of the body grow and mature and develop into the person that God wants them to be. But here's what I know. The majority of people are not only not using their spiritual gift, the majority of people in the church today have no desire to use their spiritual gift. You say, Rocky, how could you ever say that? Here's why. Because most people, when they're looking for a church to be a part of, don't ask the question, how can I use my gifts to minister to the church? Most people, when they're looking for a church, are asking, how is that church going to minister to me and my family? And understand, that's the wrong question. I'm not saying that it's not a valid question. It is a valid question. I mean, goodness, if you have preschoolers and children and students, you certainly want a church that's going to help those kids grow up in the grace and knowledge of the Lord, amen? But that's not the number one thing. The number one thing is how am I going to be able to use the gifts that God has given me in that church to make a difference in the world. That's what God has called us to do. I heard about a first grade teacher who asked their class her class this question, "How do you help at home?" And one little girl said, "Well, I do the dishes." Another little boy said, well, I feed the dog. Another kid said, well, I sweep the floor. Every child went through and told what they did at home except one little boy. His name was Johnny. He never said anything. And the teacher looked at Johnny and said, Johnny, how do you help at home? And little Johnny said, well, I stay out of the way. And I'm afraid that's what a lot of us do. I mean, when it comes to the church, you know, how are we helping? We stay out of the way so that other people can do the work. And that's not what is supposed to happen. The Bible says here, listen, we're not going to go into this in detail, but what it says here is God has gifted certain people with roles that can equip the people to do the work of the ministry. So God gives the church, in this context, he says, apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors, teachers, who can equip The people for the work of ministry. Now, that word equip in verse 12 is found only this time in the New Testament. This is the only place this word is used in the New Testament. And what the word literally means is it means to to equip to fitness. It's kind of like uh, pastors and teachers and leaders in the church are your own fitness trainers spiritually. So we're the ones on the video, you know, going, go this way, go that way. You know, we're the Richard Simmons with the headband. No, please, please God, no. But, but what, what this is saying is that teachers and the leaders in the church have the role, have the responsibility to make spiritually fit, to train, to equip people to do the work of ministry. And so we're diverse in our gifts. We're united in our commitments and our convictions. And then finally, a healthy church is characterized by maturity. Listen to what it says in verses 13 through 15 again. This will continue until we come to such unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. Then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who is the head of the body, his church. Now listen very carefully. The goal of the church is not to build bigger buildings. The goal of the church is not to bring in more money. The goal of the church is not to attract a bigger crowd. The goal of the church should be to produce spiritually mature followers of Jesus. That's the ultimate goal of the church. Now, here's what I believe. The church has gotten sidetracked. And I'm talking about our church. I'm talking about most churches. We've began to chase after other things that are important, that are needed, but aren't the main things. For instance, we need buildings. If we're going to do the things that we do with students and preschoolers and children, we're going to gather together to worship, we need buildings. If we're going to have a school, we need buildings. But listen... We could exist without buildings. We need money. I mean, if we don't give money, there are things that God has called us to do that we may not be able to do. We need money. And we should always seek to attract the crowd because we want people to come to faith in Christ and be changed. But listen, the problem is, is we've made these secondary things the primary thing. And the primary thing is helping people grow to maturity in Christ. Jesus never told us to go out into the world and get people to make a decision. Jesus told us to go into the world and make disciples and to teach them to obey everything that he taught. That is our commission. And here's what I believe If we will get serious about making disciples, helping people grow to maturity in the faith, everything else will take care of itself. I mean, a mature believer is going to want to tell other people about Jesus. A mature believer is going to be a good steward with their resources. A mature believer is going to do the other things that the Bible tells us to do. But if we don't grow people up in their faith and people stay babies, children, instead of growing to adulthood spiritually, then our church will never reach its full potential. And that's the problem. We've been tracking things that are important but aren't most important. You see, if we want to make a real difference in the world... We've got to start focusing on building mature followers of Jesus. So where are you? Where are you at in your life? Well, if you're here and you've never truly committed your life to Christ, you've never surrendered your life to him, you've never been born again, I want to talk to you in just a minute. Before I do that, if you're here and you're a Christian, because most of you in here say, I'm a follower of Jesus. I want you to ask yourself these three questions. What am I doing to promote unity within my church? Or some of the things that I'm doing, sowing discord. Second, am I using the gifts that God has given me to build up the body? Or am I a spectator watching, observing, getting out of the way? And then third, am I committed to becoming spiritually mature? To learning how to do all the things that Christ commanded us to do so that we can make a difference in the world. Now what I want you to do for just a moment, you who are followers of Jesus, So I want you to bow your head and I just want you to ask yourself, okay, how am I doing in each of these three areas? And and I want you to maybe ask God to forgive you in an area that you need to ask forgiveness for. But then make a commitment in the areas that you need to improve upon and begin to figure out how can I do these things that I need to do to, to be the follower of Jesus I need to be. So you who already gave your life to Christ, you do that. For anybody in this room who isn't a Christ follower, you're saying, I'm ready to quit playing games. I'm ready to give my life to Jesus wholly and completely. I want to encourage you right here, right now to pray this prayer. Dear God, I humbly come to you today begging you forgive me. I don't deserve it, but I need it. I know you love me. You proved it on the cross. Today I'm trusting you to save me. Today I'm surrendering my life to you. Today I am committing to follow you for the rest of my life. Fill me with your spirit. Make me brand new. Give me the desire And the power to live a life that's pleasing to you. Because I can't do it on my own. From this moment on, Jesus, I'm going to live for you. Thank you for hearing my prayer. Amen.